Welcome to the Autobahn Country Club Podcast, where your host, club member John Grabeel, opens the doors to America's premier auto sports club. Now, here's John. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to the Autobahn Podcast, brand new for 2018. This show is number one. I'm John Grabeel, and I'll be your host as we get to know the people and events that make up the Autobahn. The Autobahn Country Club is a racing club located in Joliet, Illinois about 45 minutes south of Chicago. The plan is to release the show on Wednesdays and we'll highlight an interview with a member of the Audubon staff, a club member, or personality. We'll wrap up the show with a staff member recapping past events and detailing the upcoming events. If you'd like to send us a comment or question, you can reach us at podcast at audubonsc.com, on Facebook at Audubon Podcast, or Twitter at Audubon Podcast. Let us know what you think and any ideas for future shows. At the beginning of each show, a car will start up. See if you can guess what it is. At the end of the podcast, I'll tell you the make and model. In our first show, we start off with an in-depth interview with Mark Basso. He's the president and founder of the Audubon Country Club. We met at the clubhouse, and Mark takes us back to the 1990s when he first got the idea of a racing club. Surprisingly candid, Mark paints a detailed picture of the challenges that he and his co-founders faced. I hope you enjoy our first show. And now, here's Mark Basso on the Audubon Podcast. All right, well, we're at podcast number one for the Audubon, and today we're going to speak with Mark Basso, president, CEO, president, founder, president and founder mm-hmm. of Audubon Country Club. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot, John. Thanks for having me. So, I guess we should start at the beginning. Wow. That's a long time ago. <laughs> How long ago? Well, <clears throat> I would say the, uh, you know, the genesis or what really started this was, you know, I've been a car guy my whole life. And uh, when I was in high school, my parents belonged to a golf country club. And I used to go there and thought it was really cool, except for the golf part, you know. Uh, <laughs> so, uh but I was always in the cars, and after college, started getting more serious and amateur things with the Porsche Club and the Mustangs and SCCA and all kinds of fun stuff, and start traveling around, uh, you know, the Midwest. And then you have a family, and your family doesn't want to go sit in Gingerman's parking lot for the weekend, you know, while I'm out there playing. So, uh, you know, it kind of started putting together the idea of merging the structure of a golf country club with the road course you know i just thought well how come car guys don't have their own country club just like golfers do so that was about the mid 90s i was an insurance broker for 20 some years and uh so i had some time and renewals and so i started working on this plan and then um you know brought it to my first partners uh tim o'donnell tim's a corporate tax attorney a cpa so he he likes cars but he's that a driver, you know, like I enthusiast to the level I was, and he said, "Ah, oh, that's a stupid idea. That'll never work. You know, there's not enough people." But you know, little by little, as the concept started evolving and forming, you know, he realized that wow, there's a pretty big market for this, and you know, there is a demand, and you know, so we need to start working through all these things. But uh, so that was in the mid '90s. Started writing the business plan, getting more serious. Then started looking at property and uh, you know, getting shot down in several locations. 
So, so did you grow up around here? Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Lombard. Went to my teeny high school. Went to John Carroll University. Played football four years out there. But what position did you play? I was a running back. So <laughs> survived <laughs> <laughs> until the CTE kicks in at some point. <laughs> that was fun. It was a lot of fun. So. And when did you get your first car? How were you? First car was a '74 Firebird. So Esprit 350. So of course the first thing I did, which is kind of funny, is rip the intake manifold off, and uh, obviously the carb. I had no idea what I was doing. Went to how a, old were you? Uh, 16. Right, sixteen. Went to a speed shop, and the guy said, "Oh, this seven eighty CFM carb would be perfect for that car." Of course, it was way too big, but didn't know what I was doing. A buddy of mine said he knew about cars, so I said, "Oh, okay." And he worked at a you know gas station where you know just a not a full service one. So he said, yeah, bring your bike, we'll put it on. So we're in the parking lot of this gas station in between customers. We pulled off the exhaust, the intake and the carburetor and bolted this new one on. Of course, it was leaking gas everywhere. It started on fire on the way home. I had a fire extinguisher in the car to put it out every time it'd flare up again. But got it to his house and then his dad's like, you idiots. So he kind of helped us get it together. But the car never really ran right because it was too big of a carburetor you know, or it bogged a lot but every once in a while you could get it really close and then it was a beast then put side pipes on it but then after that then my next car is a 78 Trans Am which was very cool smoking abandoned yeah gold one was it oh yeah, nice gold t-tops uh, oh t-tops and everything yeah, yeah. perfect car for a kid in high school or college <laughs> wow got a lot of trouble with that car my my wife had a smoking bandit car she played with so much really when she was a little girl she wore the bird off of it her mom <laughs> attempted to paint the bird back on it for wow. her. She, she she loves that car <laughs> yeah that thing was awesome i really liked that car but i couldn't fix it fast enough it's just the rust was just tearing it apart because i drove it all the time and everything was just coming apart at the seams. so so, but anyway, then after college, when I got my first job, I bought a 83 280ZX Turbo, which was you know, nice. a nice car for a 23-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> Black turbo, beige interior, five-speed. Cool. But then I got into Porsches after that. 88, nine, or 85 and a half, 944 just came out. Model. I wanted a Corvette, but I went to the dealership. And this big sales guy came up and I had jeans. You know, I'm a young kid. I said, Yeah, I want to give it, take a Corvette for a ride. The guy said, Rides are at Disney World. If you want to buy this car? You show up with cash. <laughs> so I was so pissed off. I went right to the Porsche dealership. And the guy goes, Yeah, let's go for a ride. Let's go. And this guy was a really nice guy. We tore around 944. And I thought that was a pretty cool car. So I so bought that 28 grand. Just had everything. It was a great car. I drove it. A bunch of years then, I got an 88 Turbo S, and then things got went downhill with cars from there. <laughs> the more and more started showing up. But. So when did you start racing? Did you start doing track days back then? Oh, I was when? racing since I was 16. Oh. Illegally. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it wasn't until uh, the Porsches when I got into the Porsche Club and then got into amateur stuff, autocrossing, track stuff, but. Where it would have been the closest track for you? Blackhawk. Blackhawk? Yeah. 
Yeah, so, then, you know, and then Gingerman. And, but, yeah, there's a lot of years it was just having fun with cars and driving around. I really didn't know, you know, track. If I would have known you could do that when I was right out of college, I probably would have went after racing because I, I just, I love cars and racing. That's what I wanted to do. But I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know where to go or anything. You know, back in the early 80s, it was kind of this mysterious hidden world. Watch IndyCar on TV and NASCAR, but I didn't know where to go or to talk to actually get into it. So it took all those years of just screwing around. Finally, then once I started doing it, then the the fire, you know, became terminal, as they say. <laughs> so I was like, oh my god, this is awesome. And then I was an insurance broker; it was a good way to build the business. So I, I looked at it from that aspect too, taking customers or meeting guys like you. So then, um, so back in the mid '80s, you had the just kind of uh, moving back to where to where we started. So in the mid '90s, I guess you had the the plan, the vision. Yep. yep. The clubhouse, actually, in our clubhouse, the drawing that I did in my basement at the bar is framed. It's kind of fading away because it's in pencil, but. Uh, that was uh, kind of starting to put all the ideas, and it was actually to scale ish. <laughs> you know, as best you could do. With so what them. year was that? Was that? Uh, that was in the late nineties, when that was after the you know started writing the business plan, and then you know just want to get serious about it, trying to figure out all these things, and uh, so that was kind of more just early blush at it. But then after that then we uh start talking to Alan Wilson. And uh Alan Wilson is our designer here and he's done probably the most prolific track designer in the world. He's probably done more than just about anybody. But he understands the business side of it and you know, he thought it would never work because we were the first purpose built country club track. Uh, did you have to have the land for him to decide to have the lay of the land first or did he just have the no. Did he design the track and then he tried to find the land that fitted? Or how did no, that the, work? the one criteria that we had that I learned from talking to a lot of people, you know, kind of while this was really when we kind of decided, hey, I'm going to get serious about this and go for it. We started talking to a lot of guys and I talked, I don't even, I can't remember the guy's name, some track owner in Canada. Somebody said, you should call this guy. And he said, you have to have two tracks. He said, don't have two tracks, it's never going to work. Because he added a second circuit on his course. I, I don't even know, can't even remember what, what it was. But, uh, you know, then you have the opportunity for members to show up, drive whatever they want, and then you can rent out the other track there. So that was the, the big criteria that we gave to Alan was that the facility has to have two tracks. Because we're going to ask members, you know, they have to pay a decent amount for a nice place, right? Join, but they're going to pay a fair amount of money. They're going to want to have access when they want it. That was the whole concept. So I lived in West Chicago at the time, so the first location I thought would be perfect was next to the DuPage Airport, right? Just oh, yeah. could fly in yeah. jets. And there was a 1,000 acres there for this technology park, and I thought, wow, this is really cool. But that, they did not want anything to do with us or any other racing ideas. The NASCAR guys, I think, even approached them at the same time. It was really about the same time we were starting to, to, you know, launch this concept. The NASCAR guys were searching Chicago as well for the 
you know, the home of the Chicagoland Speedway, which is obviously here. But they started over in that area. Then they went to Plano. So after DuPage, there's no way it was going to work there. Then we went to the same concept. Planes are louder than cars and access and all that. So I tried next to the, uh, the Aurora Airport. And the airport manager was real receptive to the idea, but the city was not. So mm. there's 250 acres basically adjacent to the airport. And so we made a run there. I mean, we were in city meetings, city council meetings, and, you know. That's All when, for this, but you had to get the special special, special, special use, use permit, permit or 3D sure, yeah. or whatever it was going to be structured as. And this, the city was kind of open to it, and, uh, you know, but the people, no way. And it was just how people are. They didn't want any development. And at the meetings, they would come up and complain about, you know, how they like to take naps in their backyard and the cars would be going all the time, make all this noise. And I said, well, you have a landing and takeoff every three minutes. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, the planes come and go. I said, yeah, every three minutes. But <laughs> that didn't matter. Once the perception of noise gets out there, you're dead. There's no way to count. You can't define noise. It's not really, you can measure it, but you can't really. It's different things. To do. Well, anyway, but the one thing that came out of, of that whole exercise uh, was meeting a guy, Jerry Rich. And I don't know if you know him, but uh, Rich Harvest Country Club is his golf course. He has an enormous uh, car collection and, you know, estate in <laughs> Sugar Grove. It's amazing. Hmm. And so he wanted to join Augusta, and they, they snuffed him. He got pissed and said, well, screw you guys. I'll build something better. So he built Rich Harvest Farms, which is an amazing private golf country club. They only have like 30 members or something like that. But beautiful. I met with Jerry and his wife and, and for lunch. And, you know, what he said is that, you know, if you combine the five collar counties of Chicago, you, you'd have one of the largest countries in the world, the GDP. So he said, there's enough people with money to make this idea work, you know. So that was very encouraging for somebody like him to say the crazy idea it can work, you know, but uh, obviously you got to find the right location. So when Sugar Grove fell apart, I was pretty depressed. I mean, I thought, this is it. This thing's never going to happen. How many years into it is this now? It was probably two. two years you know, we started spending some money there. You know, not huge, but still, you're once you start writing checks out of your own account for stuff, it becomes pretty real. Um, so, you know, uh, you know, so now, you know, now what? You know, but then I heard... Uh, you know, the NASCAR guys were coming to, to Joliet. Yeah, that's when Route 66, the guys got together, approached the city, went to NASCAR, said, the deal's done. All you have to do is show up, and they did. So once I heard that, you know, and then I was like, wow. And my wife said, you know, if you really want to do this, you should go for it. So I said, okay. <laughs> so I came down to meet the guys from uh, City Joliet, and they were there. They said, yeah, we'd love to have this. There's this area south of 80 that we don't really have. It's industrial entertainment, you know, it's where the drag strip and NASCAR track are. So why don't you, uh, you know, go see what's there. So with that kind of, you know, blessing, uh, so to speak, we started looking at property down here. And there was a guy, John Weitendorf Sr., who all he did his whole life was buy land and sit on it and sell it. So he bought a 1,000 acres. Here that was excess property from waste management that they thought they would never need. 
So he went to the auction. He was the only one there. And he paid 1200 bucks an acre for this 1,000 acres. Wow. And our 350 acres was part of that. And he sold it to us for 10 times what he paid, which we thought we'd get screwed. But now, <laughs> now <laughs> we get it yeah. now. Holy yeah. cow. But uh, so, you know, but that was, uh, that was, you know, the right piece. And the land had a lot of challenges. Was it unincorporated? It became Joliet annexed it. So Juliet Annex. Yeah, so the Chicagoland Speedway, the drag strip, NASCAR track, us, and obviously now all the intermodals all in the city of Joliet. So is the so Elwood comes up on the is it where's Elwood? Is that Elwood is just south of us, but South okay. Yeah, but we are in City in Joliet. Yeah. So you know. And so we, you know, we worked out a that was a whole, you know, there was just not as easy as okay, go ahead guys. You know, there was a lot of what year did you actually buy the land? It was late nineties, I believe, two thousand maybe, or yeah, two thousand one. I think is when we went to contract on the land. I think it, it took a couple of years, and that was you know that was the hard part. You know, it was very difficult because just because you have a bunch of land doesn't mean you can build a track on it. You know, there's a lot of engineering, enormous amount of engineering and architect. You know archaeological reviews. I mean, if you find an Indian burial ground or something, who knows? That, that could be it. So, right. Um, so, at that time, we were talking to guys about being founding members. And, uh, this is right before September 11th, and is it, or is it afterwards? It was after that, but it was that. I remember that because we had our uh, our website kind of this, this little little website with web page phone number up there and we were getting calls like crazy people interested and then when 9-11 happened it was like the switch went off i bet got really quiet but we just kept you know talking because there's there's still a lot long way to go before we could get to you know anything so uh, but yeah there was a lot of talking with guys and trying to get this core group so you know, so now, okay, you got this idea, and you got a city that says, yeah, you can probably do it, but, you know, now you need money, right? A lot of it. So uh, that's where we came up with the idea of uh, founding memberships. So at the time, it was me, Tim. So Tim's a corporate tax attorney. Mike Heck was our other partner. And Mike owned an advertising agency, and so he created our website and the logo. So we could take our ideas and Mike could make it look real and Tim could protect it to make sure it's legal and get <laughs> the right structure. And then we could start talking to people about it. So, um, you know, we started little by little getting a guy, yeah, I'd be interested. And, you know, so the idea was uh, 40 guys at, you know, 100,000 each and uh, they'd get a lifetime membership with no dues. They get paid back at some point in the future. But of course, we didn't own any land, didn't have any permission or anything, but, you know, that was the idea. <laughs> Sign up, right? So the first three of us, obviously, were the first. Uh, so, you know, at that point then, so now we started getting some momentum with, and those guys were paying in the 100 over time. It wasn't just write us a 100 check. I think, it was, I can't remember if they gave us 10 or some small amount, and little by little, as things progress, you know, ask bit more but uh so then we you know got the land of the contract and then then alan wilson started 
seeing the land and then the engineers started looking at it and we started going through the city meetings and and there was some drama there i mean that right when we were about to go to the city so meeting, this is 2002 ish by now or 2000 yeah probably because we, we construction was 04 so this is probably 02 03 in that vicinity and so um you know we well, I remember one meeting we were about to go to the city meeting to get approval, and then all of a sudden the city manager, you know, throws this huge curve at us saying, well, you guys want to build, you know, we don't trust you guys. All of a sudden this place is going to go bankrupt, and our police department is going to be chasing kids off this torn up racetrack. So we want you to, you know, do a line, a letter of credit for, uh, I think it was like a 40,000 square foot clubhouse. And it's like, you know, you can't, you know, tie up private development to do something that, wow. you know. So it went down to the wire. Our local attorney, Mike Hansen, who's amazing, he, you know, we ended up getting it to a point of comfort, uh, somewhat of comfort. And uh, you know, that took some time and helped by some of the founders. John Weinberger came down and talked to the city. And, so they started to get a little bit more comfortable with who we are and who the founding member group was going to be. And anyway, so uh, got to the point and got all those approvals and then, uh, you know, started construction. But the other thing that was happened that, you know, we thought, oh, we'll get, you know, we'll use operating capital from, <clears throat> from the track rental to, you know, the interesting thing was is the land we didn't, buy it all at once up front so we had the land structured in four takeouts oh wow yeah right. it was four takeouts because we wanted to build the track there's so much uh, there's so much skepticism you know how are these guys going to be able to do this and afford all that so we said well you know the landowner said all right well let's you know, do it in four takeouts but of course i think he was hoping that it didn't work so you know, <laughs> get the money back right get yeah. the land back right yeah, get all get the, the money and get the land back yeah so um so it was it was pretty pretty tough, but uh, what we ended up doing it was kind of interesting. Is as the design was coming forward, I, I said to the engineers, "Hey, can you guys put some lots around the track?" You know, so the first takeout we were taking buying was the land along uh, at that time was Mills Patterson Road, which is now Centerville Way, but and then the main paddocks anywhere there's going to be building. Obviously, we had to buy the land. But the track essentially was not a bought land. It was a, and the plan was to paint the two tracks all at once. Yes. So you had that much land at least. Oh yeah, we had enough land to do it. But to buy it though, we actually only bought takeout one was the paddocks where the clubhouse was going to be and the cafe and registration because those are the only three. And then our timing; those are the only okay. buildings that were actually built right away. Gotcha. And then the north strip along. You know, where all the phase one lots are. So, because we said, hey, maybe guys want to buy lots and build garage mahal. So, is that, had anybody else had done that before? Have you guys, are the, is no, that, really. how did that idea come about? You just said, hey, this would be a great idea. And well, you know, it's kind of, to me, once again, just looking at the golf or lake houses. You know, my family, my grandfather built a lake house a long time ago and I grew up with it. So, it's like, you know, why wouldn't you want to build? garage and hall to overlook the track the other cool thing is remember the show dantana yeah where the the detective had his uh cool t-bird versus yeah he came up the elevator and he parked it inside his lot right in his car in his house yeah how cool would that be to be able to drive your car 
lake house. So <laughs> those are that was kind of the inspiration. And so the engineers called me up and said, "Yeah, we got 19 lots on the North Track." I was like, "Wow, that's, that's awesome!" So at at uh, Continental Ferrari, one of the early founder meetings, he said, "Hey, you know, after the meeting, you guys come up. We got these 19 lots." for sale and you know if anybody's interested after the meeting everybody came up said i want this one i want that one and they said how much i said 100 grand they're like all right well, i should ask for more oh. we sold 19 lots it was 1.9 million so that plus Holy the 4 God. million all of a sudden did the city know you'd plan on doing that or did they yeah. how did that well that was did they, they were receptive was, to that yeah that was interesting too because uh, our engineers, Ruger and Tonelli at the time, and we told them we wanted to do uh, lots, they said, well, you have to follow subdivision regulations then. If you subdivide it, you know, you need streetlights, sidewalks, and that would have just destroyed it. So we said, what if we do ground leases? And they said, yeah, then you don't have to follow uh, subdivision regulations. So that that's how we did it. So we sold all the lots on a hundred ground lease. Oh, <clears throat> interesting. So, yeah, so that money from the phase one lots is that how it's still done today? Yeah, all the lots are are all <laughs> all seventy two that we sold are all hundred ground leases. Condos are fee simple, but it actually evolved where even the lot owners, everybody is their own pin now, which is something unusual, but which is great for everybody. So, but anyway, so so now we had that money plus uh, the founders' money, and then members started joining at a pretty good pace. So uh, that took care of that, that first takeout. We were able to build both tracks because we didn't really have any bank financing, I don't think, at all. It was very oh, wow. minimal at that point. What was the first building that, that was built? Uh, registration, then cafe, north timing, and this building. Clubhouse, so. Uh, and then after that, who, who, who was the first like landowner that built? Yeah, Dave Gaber. It was the first garage mall on the north track, and uh, everybody thought, wow, it's huge. Now it's you know, dwarfed. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was, that was pretty pretty amazing. But then what happened was pretty incredible. Is that, so now we had, okay, well, now we've got one takeout done. We've got three more to go. Uh, we thought, oh, we're going to pay for those out of operating profits. No way was that going to work. So that's when we launched phase two of lots. So we had 17 in phase two, and the price jumped to 135 each. And we had to sell close on all those at the same time to be able to hit uh, takeouts. Two, I think we had for two became part of three or something like that, but we did it. We sold all close of all at the same time. All that money went to takeouts uh, two, and I think part of three. And then the phase three lots, we had to do it again. Another, I think there's 11 guys at 150,000 each of those lots. And then we sold all those and then all the land was paid for. Done. Did the price of the land stay the same through the whole time or as each takeout that he upped, that he upped the price? No, it was, that was all, all set. Price. All that was good. Determined. Yeah. So yeah. that, that was amazing. Yeah. Otherwise we would have had, it would have been very, very, very difficult get that much money. But, I mean, it, you know, we weren't billionaires, obviously, so, you know, or we would have lost all our equity if we had to you know, do it all. So, it, amazingly, it, it worked, you know, and, uh, you know, then in 04, you know, 
05, 06, 07, and then when the economy tanked, that was pretty scary. So when so when you first guys, when was the first open day on the track? 04, fall of 04. And how many October, members were there then? 100 and something. So 100 members in October, Caesars so just opened the month of October. Yeah. And yeah. then closed. <laughs> yeah, we we just we put the actually had to put the track into service in October to qualify for this tax uh, <clears throat> to depreciate the you know what we built. So that worked out good. That's why we put it into service on at the end of the season, which was that was kind of funny days. Uh, the north track wasn't really even. It was done. It was paved in the south. All the track were paved. We didn't have all the guardrail in. We didn't have fencing up. We didn't have electricity for that day, <laughs> but. Uh, you know, we had, did you take the first lap? I took the first lap before the track was built. <laughs> what do you mean? We, we, we were taking laps in the dirt in the farm field with trucks. We did that as one of the founder meetings, which was pretty funny. We so you're doing rally there. cross out there, kind, we of, were, kind of mapping through out the, field, through yeah, the fields, mapping out where the track might be. <laughs> through our, our wives' suburbans and expeditions, and then we all got flat tires because the corn shredded our tires. We didn't know, but it was pretty funny. Um, but yeah, so we put it in operation. It was kind of funny that on, uh, on Monday, uh, you know, I get this call from the city, Joliet, you know, out of my insurance office, and this lady calls, so you guys opened the track this weekend? I go, uh, yeah, we did. Well, we got some complaints. I'm like, uh-oh. So, well, we got complaints of loud noise, explosions, low-flying airplanes. <laughs> so a couple of our members, uh, Dick Hansen, they had uh, World War II airplanes, T-6s, and they came into, they were doing touch-and-goes, allegedly, on the long straightaway, the South Track, oh doing gosh. smoke, flying over. The play, It was amazing. We had our own air show, and, and uh, the cars on track. And, so that was, <laughs> was a pretty good little opening day. Uh, but then, you know, 05, both tracks open, full operation, and, you know, way we went. So. How many employees did you have the first that first summer? Um, uh, you know, not sure exact number. We have a hundred plus now, but it's a big pool. So you ramp up and down depending. You know, we had the same amount of track corner workers, and you had five corner workers on the north track, six on the south, and you got two race control guys. You got two safety teams. Who was the first full time employee that you guys hired? Or? Uh, I think Tom Bagley. So Tom was recommended to us from Alan Wilson. Uh, the time was an Indy car driver in the early 80s, and so Tom helped with all the safety systems, the placement of tire walls, the bolt, you know, the, the tire walls were all bolted together correctly, so Tom helped a lot with Alan to get us the safety, and, you know, obviously he raced his whole life, so. So when did you, did you stop? Your, or close your insurance company, or when did no, you I move was, to full? I, I was doing everything, <laughs> trying to do everything, which was not easy. So, yeah, it was that was not that easy trying to balance things. But basically, I just at that point kind of just was said, "Well, I'm walking away from the insurance." And luckily, you have renewals insurance, and so I was trying to ride that as long as I could while this was getting started. Because you know, it's a new startup; you can't just out a lot of money you know right so you can't do that so you just kind of had to bleed down your assets while this other venture was, was taken off so that was the plan <laughs> so that was uh that was interesting but yeah it was busy you know and i lived up in west chicago so it was 
a lot, you know, every day I had to be here because there's the tracks being built and there's decisions. We had a, a Jack McTravers who's our construction manager, Jack built the Empress Casinos. He's built roads, bridges, built, he's built everything his, over his whole life. So he was a great guy to have. Uh, but still, there's a million decisions every single day. There's 20 uh, earth movers out, moving around, and backhoe, you know, everything. So it was a big, it was a big project. I can't remember how many yards of dirt were moved, but it was a lot. Hundreds of thousands. So. And before it was just, just complete, the whole entire thing was in corn? Yeah, it's cornfield. And then we had to deal with the Army Corps of Engineers because there's, you know, there's two creeks to go through. So because we impacted those, we had to deal with them. That took a year in itself. And, you know, then you compensate outside, you go a lot more bang. So, I mean, gained an appreciation for water that I never had <laughs> in my life until trying to develop this piece of property. So, there's gas pipelines that cut through the property all over the place. So, that was another issue to deal with. So Were they easy to deal with when, when you worked with them yeah, initially? To... That's some sort of yes and no. There's lots of different companies, gas lines that come through this area so you have to deal with kind of each one of them what else was around was there other farmlets that's it pretty much yeah just little farmlets which was the other kind of scary thing because if you remember back before the big crash the pasquinelli and these other big subdivisions were buying huge tracts of land and they were expanding they thought they'd be building you know two hundred thousand dollar houses forever right and they started buying land around us they actually did buy chunks of land and all of a sudden you start worrying about the noise which has right. killed a lot of tracks yeah doesn't matter if you're there first but then when the economy crashed those guys all vanished and that's when centerpoint showed up through uh you know dennis hiffman and tom collins and they i think recognized the opportunity around here and helped bring in centerpoint which was amazing for us because we've got all brand new roads city sewer and water you know everything is all and it's industrial so they don't care oh, about it because you probably had a well here right when you first started we still have wells on property but all the phase four lots and condos are on city sewer and water the cafe is now on city sewer and water so it's all here now before they came it was miles away and to bring city sewer and water oh, right. yeah. miles away and the roads were tar and chip it was kind of funny. You'd see these guys in Ferraris and <laughs> tractors coming down this tar and chip road. Uh, it was tough. But Ferraris driving just as fast as the tractors, I'm sure, to keep, much the, keep the tar off their cars and paint safe. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so now with Centerpoint, they've invested an enormous amount of money here with all the infrastructure. So we have all these new roads and a new bridge coming, which will improve access to us right from I 80. It's amazing. Oh, really? Coming yeah. straight down? Oh, yeah, wow. Holbolt Road. There's a new interchange at Holbolt Road. It's going to so be able to come right from 80 on this interchange and right basically to our front north front door. It's because it's feed all the trucks right into the intermodal. But obviously, members will be able to use that as well, I guess. So it will eliminate all this winding around. You and know, then you you're coming from the north anyway. You moved down. Yeah, the Shorewood, so we built a house in 06, just to throw in another little thing to do <laughs> on top of all the other chaos, build a house, that was crazy. Uh, but yeah, my son started high school, so I didn't want him to start up there and then 
moved down here. Move it, yeah, that would have been bad. So he actually commuted to me every mor- with me every morning, which was a nightmare. For, oh wow, to start school down from, here. But, oh, yeah, yeah, he started in the fall while the house was being built, and then we didn't close until April. So that was fun getting up really early and taking it to school every day. Luckily, he played football, so he stayed after school every day to practice. <laughs> Give you more time to work. <laughs> yeah. So then, yeah, it was insane. Don't do that. <laughs> Whatever I do, don't do it. Oh, wow. That was a quite, quite beginnings. So at what point do you think that you really knew this was going to work? Was it? I mean, you, I'm sure you had to have confidence in that it was a good plan and everything else. But yeah. When did you first say it did? It did. We did. We did it. It I, did work out. I don't. I mean, in business, do you ever say that? <laughs> right. You know, but I don't know. I mean, I I just thought the real estate was the tipping point. I thought I thought the real estate is what's going to make this a viable business because you know you just you has to create this sense of community. It's a lifestyle decision to join, right? If you're doing this, you can't be voting. Or, you know, some people do it all, but right. you know, it's something you want have to want to do. It's the only reason you can do it. So, uh, but it's a, it's a beautiful, you know, it's a beautiful piece of property. Once yeah, people come here, it's like they just can't believe it. So, it is, it is, it is. And how many? So you could put lots around the entire. Tra- I no, mean, is it, no, we've are you we've limited? sold every lot we've developed now, all seventy two. So seventy two total lots, all sold, all sold. So the, there's lots for sale, which are resales of members that, for one reason or another, decided not to build. Um, but we're not going to be developing any more lots just because it takes, you know, it's it's huge. It takes up a lot of space. It's very expensive. So you know, not everybody wants to build. You know, mega garage mall. So that's why we come up with the rental garages and condos. Condos are really cool. Those are very popular. We sold out the first building with six units in it, and uh, working on the next building right now. So if it's six cars in the garage, you got fourteen foot high ceilings, nice bathroom, laundry room upstairs, two bedrooms, a beautiful kitchen with an island, with you know party room, big deck looking towards the track. So for a little less than you know, 475000 you've got an amazing package. Keep a bunch of cars and you can hang out you know, overnight if you want to stay for the weekend. And how many new, so before, how many rental garages were there? there were... Well, we didn't, initially we couldn't build rental garages, even though we, we kind of wanted to, but we needed capital you know, to pay off everything. So <laughs> selling the lots, was, every time you sell a lot, you get a chunk of cash, right? So we could mm-hmm. use that to pay off everything and then then we own that 33 acres in the corner which is now that big white building so we, that was a, a good decision as well as the center point said hey you know oh the corner within the the uh, warehouse building yeah. is okay, okay yeah we used to own that okay well we determined that it's going to be a long time before we get to develop that so why not take the money so we sold that very nice profit that helped erase all the debt all the founders, oh, wow. all the founders awesome. have been paid back, you know. So we have very little debt with the property. So now it's kind of a new opportunity to, I want to say, reshape the place, or, but you know, to 
take the vision now to the next level uh, to add potentially you know, increasing the clubhouse, increasing the size of the cart track. And so you know, it's kind of all about phase two, I guess, in a way. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, the round garages are great, though. There's uh, 23 that are fully leased, and we have 39 under construction, and over half of those are already reserved. So. Do you see that a big growing area as more yeah. rental garages you could fit them in some? I think so because I think now you're starting to see the baby boomers, you know, our generation, getting to the point where maybe they don't, their kids are gone, and I don't need this giant house anymore. But I got a lot of stuff, and I want to keep it somewhere. So I see a lot of people or people in the city that want to buy more cars in the parking space in the city. Very expensive, and then what do you do with it? So. You know, people can rent a garage here or buy a condo or build a garage for hall and leave their toys here, you know, and then have a cool place in the city or be in Florida over the winter and come up here to play with your toys. And, you know, so it's, it's a really cool thing, I think, for people to be able to leave their toys somewhere where they can use them, just like a boat, right? Instead of having to trailer a boat around. Right. It's on the lake. Your, your car's on the track. Yep. Yep cars on track and then with the rally cross now now you can throw in dirt bikes and uh Polaris razors which i know you have yeah which is very cool <laughs> i want one of those <laughs> but uh yeah, yeah it's, it's becoming the all the year round it's well, not, not nice. just yeah. not just the, the the summer the summer events that take place out here yeah a lot of the members do leave though winter which is pretty cool go off to their places but uh but yeah i would we have trap shooting permits so we can do that i'll do the cones and clays event which is kind of fun so autocross and trap shooting so that was fun but um so yeah i think there's a lot of opportunity yeah that's like uh a bright future for uh all the members and new yeah. members that uh would be potential to come out here and join. Yeah, I just think once you know the hardest thing is to get somebody here. Once they show up, it's like wow, it's, you know that it's. And the other cool thing is one of our members, uh, which still sounds out there, but uh, Michael Frank owns uh, Elite Rotocraft, so he has a fleet of helicopters, and they're at the Vertiport. Oh the sure, city. yeah, yeah. So back. Yeah, we've can... done it, and it takes twelve minutes to get here to the city. And it's not crazy expensive. Five guys pitch in to it's like thirteen hundred bucks round trip. So divided by five, it's you know to be for guys who are really busy and you know, times more important money. You can you know be here in twelve minutes, go play and back right. And have your somebody out here take care of one of the, the garages yeah, or race shops. Team. Yeah, the race mean, shops take care of all your stuff, and yeah. you just show up, get in your car, and drive. Like Batman, come out of the copter. <laughs> very cool all right well uh i'd like to wrap up here thanks again mark for joining yeah. us on our first podcast it's awesome. pretty exciting i yeah. i personally learned a ton about the history of the club and cool. pretty exciting and i i know a little bit more about the beginnings and uh, excited about the future great thanks john all right thank you all right Okay, right now we're sitting down and visiting here at the track with Kyle Nado. Kyle, what's your exact position here at the track? So I am the assistant track manager. I uh, oversee the car track, our rallycross racing series, our autocross series, 
our performance fleet vehicles and any and I assist with any on track uh, racing series and activities. So you're doing a lot. We'll just say that. <laughs> uh, a lot of a lot of people here wear many different hats, and I'm one of them. We're going to spend some time with you in the future with an in-depth interview. Right now, uh, tell us a little bit about the events that are coming up at the track. We know that opening day is... Opening day is March 31st. We're Saturday. very excited for it. It's Saturday. Um, that's going to be the first day that members can come out and drive on track, kind of shake off the winter blues, and get those engines revving on, on the 31st of March. Rain or shine? Rain or shine. Snow? Rain, shine, sleet, snow. We're kind of like the postal service. <laughs> okay. So the track is going to be open no matter what the weather is for the first days. Correct. Right? Next day, uh, Sunday, they'll be closed for Easter. And then normal track operations Tuesday through Sunday for the all the way through the end of all October. All the way through till uh, pretty much November 1st usually is when we, uh, when we stop. Okay. And the uh, first events that... That are coming up at the track? Do you have any big events coming up? So actually on opening day, not only do we have events going, or our members allowed on the, the big track, uh, we're also hosting with our partner, Margay Carts. Uh, they are going to be hosting a karting seminar, and that is open to members and also guests as well. So they can learn more about the Margay Carts themselves, the karting uh, league that we have for members, also how to set up your cart for racing, and pretty much it's a way to get started in uh, in karting and in racing. So yeah, the cart series here. Uh, there's a spec series, which is the Ignite Cart Igniter is out. Ignite Company or Margate Company Marget, yep. is out of St. Louis. Correct. Um, and the Ignite is a style of w one of their carts that they... It's one of their, the main, yeah. The main cart. It's got mm -hmm. a... My son does that, so I know a little bit about it. It's a uh, Briggs & Strat sealed L206 motor. Yeah, it's a so. four-cycle uh, four motor, four-stroke. Um, they're fairly easy to work on, and it, it is a spec series. So this way, it... You know, it's not wallet racing. You know, you're not sure. uh, putting a whole bunch of money into it, and it really comes down to driver's ability. With that said, if you're just getting started, we also offer one-on-one uh, -on -one instruction along with more karting camps this year. We already have five scheduled, and depending on demand, we're going to be offering more as well. Yeah, my son did their karting camp last year, loved it. Um, it was fantastic. So, yeah, I give a big thumbs up. He... We've already got all those on the schedule, so he doesn't miss any of those coming out here all day long. So, yeah, along with the track here at the Autobahn, the racetrack, there's a kart track um, that can be in during most of the races. You extend we, the track, yeah. make it longer. We right? expanded. So the permanent track, the kart track right now is three-tenths of a mile wide. It's 30 feet wide. There's a 650-foot-long straightaway. But we have an adjacent lot next to the kart track that we've extended. Uh, into and essentially doubling the length of the cart track uh, to just over six tenths of a mile. These Margay carts, depending on uh, you know what class you're in, but they're capable of about 65 miles an hour, um, and it's some of the closest wheel-to-wheel -wheel racing that we we have here. 
Yeah, so from kids. Uh, early, start at the age of five. Eight to five. And, all the way up to 95. All the way to 95, right? The adults yeah. are out there. In addition to that, um, there's also the open class. My son mm-hmm. ran an open class also last year. So any cart, any. Any cart, any. Really, any skill level. Uh, it's a very safe track uh, for the most part. Um, and we take great pride in our, our safety record. But. Um, yeah, any cart, if you've got a two-stroke, if you've got a, even a shifter cart, anything like that, um, you can run in the open class. But it seems like the Margay uh, Ignite series has been the forerunner. Yeah, it's a very popular engine. We'll go, we'll have a, a cart uh, podcast that we can oh, really yeah. tear into everything that goes on in the cart, cart track and meet some of the guys over there that take care of that in um, addition to you. Then, what else? So the Margay... So, Margay Seminar. The karting seminar. In the, in the karts. you got to be at the Margay Seminar the 31st. Mm-hmm. And then what's next? Okay. So April 7th is if you want to go from a kart to a much larger go-kart, uh, we're <laughs> offering our competition school for members to come out and actually get their racing license so they can race here. Um, in the racing series the- here. So it has to be, you have to be a member. Correct. And you come here and you get your full-blown racing Racing license to go through the racing school to get the racing license. Right. And you get taught by, you know, some of the best driving instructors in the country. So Tom Bagley, Tony Kester, these guys, uh, you know, their resumes are readily available. But anything with wheels, these guys have raced it and most likely won. You know, Tom Bagley being a three-time IndyCar driver. Or or, uh, the Indy 500. Yep, Indy 500, Um, yeah. Rookie of the year in the early 80s, yep. Yeah. Uh, He's the one that coaches me and my son and my wife as addition to that the so. wealth of knowledge that these guys have <laughs> not my daughter yet she's only 11 so he hasn't been coaching her yet okay. yeah <laughs> okay so uh so race school and then what, what that's april else? 7th april 7th uh coming up april 14th you're going to want to mark your calendars for we have the 24 hours of lemons uh coming out here though that's always a fun series because you just never know the types of cars and the characters that come along with those that's cars. That's a whole nother podcast, too, because that's cool. Yeah, because they yeah. turn minivans into race cars and come out here and, and race for 24 hours. Um, and it's it, the wackier, the better. Yeah, station uh, wagons or yeah. dot, old Datsuns, yeah. Yeah. I think I saw a microbus last time that was out here, a old Volkswagen microbus. Um, Mike Gritter, the track manager, has a great story about there was one car that, I don't know what it was, but they used a old airplane engine and it was like a chain drive or something like that that's going to be a different podcast but uh it, he said it was probably one of the wackiest you know Thanks engineering feats known to man oh, probably awesome. so that's uh april 14th and then um we get right into april 20th through the 22nd friday saturday sunday is springtime speed fest and that is one of our largest events we have three major festival weekends if you will uh springtime speed fest is when pretty much all the members come out uh it's three days of non-stop racing and there's car shows there's events we have a live band it it really is just the festival atmosphere yeah it's, it's it is a lot of fun um i look forward to that uh any so the place to go to get more information about the exact schedule, there's two websites. 
Yeah. There's Audubon Country Club and then dot com and then there's Audubon Audub- members. Audubonc.com. Uh, yes. Audubonc.com, then Audubonmembers.com where you can get the racing schedule and all the other event schedule. Yeah. Uh, you can also um, sign up there for all the different emails that come out here. So you can go to either you can send a email to podcast at audubonc.com and I can get that on the normal email list for the whole track and all the whole event. So I'm sure you can go to the Audubon CC and, and sign up there to get all that information sent to you. And you can definitely, I, I highly, highly recommend signing up for our newsletter. And I know uh, that everybody gets a million emails a day and they typically just, you know, go, I don't even look at a lot of them cause it's just junk mail right. and stuff like that. Um, but I really recommend signing up for our newsletter because that is the best way for staff, you know, myself to be in touch with our members. Um, and that's where all the information is. So any events that are coming out, um, any kind of rule changes, it's all going to be in that newsletter and that's called talk around the track. Comes out every Wednesday, every Wednesday, along with this podcast. Yep. So, all right. Well, Kyle, thanks a lot. Uh, We'll be hearing more from you as the year goes on, keeping it us, uh, abreast of all the events that are taking place well thank you very much and i look forward to it all right thanks well i'd like to thank mark and kyle for coming on the show once again here's the car that started at the beginning of the podcast that was a 2011 maserati gran turismo s thanks for listening everybody to our very first podcast and see you next time You've been listening to Autobahn Country Club Podcast, where your host, club member John Graybill, opens the doors to America's premier auto sports club. Join us next time for Autobahn Country Club Podcast.